A long, long time ago, in a galaxy far away, Naboo was under an attack. And I thought me and Qui-Gon Jinn could talk the Federation into maybe cutting them a little slack. But their response, it didn't thrill us. They locked the doors and tried to kill us. We escaped from that gas, the Met Jar Jar and Boss Nass. We took a bongo from the scene and we went to feed to see the Queen. We all wound up on tattooing. That's where we found this boy. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. I'm your host, Matthew Neugebauer, coming to you live to air from sunny, cold, sunny Wainwright, Alberta, Canada. As promised, we are kicking off our 20-year anniversary reflections on Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. So I decided to do something a little different on the intro, thanks to Weird Al Yankovic's legendary, now legendary, take on American Pie, that Anakin guy, uh, the beginning of the saga, I forget what it's called, Every Saga Has a Beginning. That's the title of this, this episode, Every Saga Has a Beginning. Um, I did recently watch episode one uh again just to jar my memory jar jar my memory of course how can i forget that film uh i'm of course as always joined here by the stalwart the savior of the naboo ship r2d2 himself how are you doing r2 good memories of saving padme's uh naboo cruiser and uh yeah we're gonna kick that off in a bit just want to mention a few things how i'm star warsing and a bit of a, a news, little little bit of a news thing. Um, I'm Star Wars, and of course, the comics are, are going strong. I'm a bit delayed on the comics just because I have to get them shipped out or have to be in Edmonton to pick them up. So a bit behind, but again, Age of Republic, keep on keeping on. Uh, latest one I read, I think it was about Jango Fett. I think I may have mentioned that. More about Boba Fett, as much about Boba Fett as Jango Fett. Which is what's great. A bit more tied into episode two, but we're still in the age of Republic. Um, I'm also reading Timothy Zahn's Conqueror's Pride. It's not, it's kind of in between Star Wars and Star Trek a little bit. It is the type of thing that maybe shows him why he'd be great as a Star Trek author because it's more earthbound and a bit more science fiction y. But starting to delve into issues of uh you know hegemony and political power and the type of thing george lucas does look at with the republic and so also a natural fit there it was written after the thrawn trilogy i believe let me check when this book was written conquerors pride also conquerors heritage and conquerors legacy written in 1994 so yeah after the thrawn trilogy when he had made his name um yeah, very interesting. Hopefully, not too much just a search and rescue story, but uh, also delving into a world that Timothy Zahn is building all on his own. I'm sure inspired a bit by Star Wars and the the hegemony of the Republic, uh, as uh, as we see. So, 
Yeah, interesting to dive into that. Um, bit of the news. I don't want to talk about news per se, but I want to talk about clickbait just a little bit. The uh, <laughs> few things have come up. This is not news. The thing that Ryan Johnson's trilogy isn't happening. Uh, I was looking, listening even more to the guys in Collider talking about that. I didn't buy it for a second. The the whole oh it's not happening. The the people who tweeted it out I think called movie bros, bros. Anything with bros in the title that isn't Super Mario Bros. It is you know especially in twenty nineteen, eh, probably going to be a little sketchy in their their news source. I don't know. Unless Super Mario Bros. or the Noogie Bros. When my brother Jamie comes on, you can trust us. Don't trust any kind of Ryan Johnson haters. Although, the one thing I will say about that is it got, it raised the question again. First of all, we haven't actually heard anything or seen anything about the Ryan Johnson trilogy, about whatever he's doing, his work on the fil- those films. Um, it, it caused him to check in with us at least yet again saying, yep, still working on it, still doing something. Christian Harloff's whole point of they're not focusing on it right now. I mean, who knows what Lucasfilm is thinking about. We will find out at Star Wars Celebration in two months' time. Two months? Yes, two months. February, March, April. Yeah. <laughs> I can do math. I'll be knee-deep in Palm Sunday and Holy Week by then. But, you know, what can you do? Uh, speaking of which, I did forget to mention the date. It is February 15th, 2019. It is the Friday after the fifth Sunday of Epiphany. Coming up on those Jessima Sundays, if you know, that deep cut. <laughs> this is a deep cut in church lane. Jessima Sundays uh, coming up. And uh, so hurling towards Lent. And we're going to maybe think about doing some form of Lenten series. We'll see. Like I did last year. I, mean, I think that went fairly well. It was a good organizing way of doing it. Anyway, if it isn't Star Wars Newsnet, if it isn't Collider or Star Wars Underworld or, you know, I mean, a Hollywood Reporter or Empire Magazine or Vanity Fair or any respected news outlets of various places and capacities, especially though anything underneath StarWars.com and, and Star Wars YouTube channel, whatever, even if anything under that, Say it's kind of okay. We don't know if it's StarWars.com, Star Wars YouTube channel. Then yeah, you can say it's it's for sure a thing because it's Lucasfilm setting their own marketing agenda. Lucasfilm deciding when we're going to release what. We're not there. We're not seeing anything until celebration. We thought we'd get a trailer or something at Super Bowl. Uh, the only reason to really watch that Super Bowl was really boring, <laughs> but the only reason to watch it. Halftime, horrible halftime show. Will we get a trailer? No, we didn't get a trailer. Um, which confirms to my mind we're not getting anything, a trailer or a title, until Celebration. I do like what they did with Avengers Endgame. Just released it with the title. Uh, released the trailer with the title. That's how we got the title. I don't know. I honestly don't know what we're going to do. It, they are kind of experimenting. Although I did see on Hello Greedo, the, the YouTube channel did this timeline of 
when they've released titles. And it's between 8 to 10 months, usually, for all the Star Wars films. So, we're talking about the Episode 9 title here. And uh, we are 10 months out from Episode 1. Episode 9, rather. We're 20 years out of Episode 1. We know that title. We're yeah, 10 months before Episode 9. And uh, so, we're still part for the course. And, and Celebration will be 8 months out of Episode 9. It's just that we want it now. We want it. We want, you know, Andy Andy at the StarWars.com YouTube thing to give us this prominent thing of the new title. But it makes so much sense to do it at Celebration. It actually gives it, makes it the occasion that the title is due. It's the occasion that the trailer is due. I don't know if we really need anything more than that, frankly. Um... It's still going to rake in the dough, even for casual fans. It's still going to, I mean, all the, all of us hardcore fans, all of us, not hardcore, I don't like that term. All of us, those who have made more of a time commitment <laughs> into Star Wars, uh, we're going to see it multiple times. I'll, if it's good enough, I'll see it nine times. I saw The Force Awakens, I saw episode Last Jedi, how many times, I forget. Uh, Force Awakens I probably saw too many times in the theaters <laughs> that's part of my problem um, but yeah there, there's going to be no news until Star Celebration um, I do have Queen's Shadow and uh, Master and Apprentice pre-ordered so that'll be you know when, when that gets released to the public I don't have any kind of special claim on that although i did try and with, with with southern ontario's kate johnston on twitter i tried to play that card the laurier card they went to laurier together sort of we never crossed the paths or anything but um no she's not gonna give me an advanced copy it was a nice try valiant attempt i think it's a valiant attempt but anyways um i'm still looking forward to queen uh master and i'm looking forward to queen shadow I'm looking forward to Master Apprentice more than anything else. And on that note, I was watching the Star Wars show last night. And at the end of the show, they usually have a thing, send in your tweets about what you're, about something, some topic, and what you think, what you feel like. And uh, then the next show, at the end of the next show, they feature them. Well, so I was. I tweeted out, I'm legit excited for Master and Apprentice more than anything else in Star Wars 2019. And my my, my new proudest moment of my life was uh, they featured that tweet. If you found this podcast, because you found my Twitter account and found this tweet, welcome. <laughs> um, my name is pronounced Nugabauer, but I, I respect Anthony's given her more than a telemarketer. <laughs> Well done, Anthony Carboni. Um, yeah, and, and thanks for uh, featuring my tweet. Um, new proudest moment in my life. Second proudest moment is now when I did that PB8 cosplay at, uh, I believe it was, uh, was it Fan Expo? Might have been Fan Expo. Or, or uh, Comic Con, Toronto Comic Con. My BB8 fleece thing, and I just wrapped myself up and curled up in the ball. That was funny. <laughs> no. Um, Glad to be out there. Glad to share my love for Cody Gray, for the prequel Defense Force, 
before the hashtag prequel list. Um, getting that out there. So, I- I'm happy. I'm excited. Speaking of prequels, R2, you ready to talk about The Phantom Menace? Water, you ready to be drunk? That was me putting my water bottle on the table. So, what makes The Phantom Menace great is, is the way I'm getting into this. Because it's one of those things. Here's a secret. I don't fully plan out what I want to say. Um, but I do try and have some leading questions for myself. What makes The Phantom Menace a great film? And I'll start off by saying I watched it again. And yes, the dialogue was kind of, parts of the dialogue were kind of wooden. Uh, Jake Lloyd, his performance is Jake Lloyd's performance. It's the one we have. Um, you know, a lot more exposition than tell, than, than, than showing us. But what makes The Phantom Menace a great film, it really kicks off everything. And I mean, I'll, I'll just start with the brilliance of having what we see at the end of, at least the end of Return of the, Return of the Jedi, sorry, as this amazing cosmic battle between light and dark, this deeply personal battle between with father and son. It starts off with a trade dispute. Who knew? <laughs> it starts off with a trade dispute. And what's amazing about that is that that's actually real life that we don't necessarily see you know how tariffs and imports and well under free trade arrangements we don't necessarily see that because NAFTA's worked so well and being being Canadian we, we know that you know so much of our economy is dependent on trade across the border but when there's a trade dispute with the United States that has these ripple effects down the line. And people like people in Cuba and other places where there's been blockades and resources can't get in and troop and, and civilians are starting to be rounded up. Uh, Cuba, that's not the case in Cuba. Uh, that starts to affect people on the ground. And, and, and so it, it's almost this jarring thing of this cool pew pew vroom vroom thing we've, Remember as a child, it's actually uh, the Trade Federation blockading a planet. We were told in legends because of plasma trade. Um, yeah, and I, I do hope the Darth Plagueis novel is still canon. So it sets that up, and, and that that's just this brilliant bait and switch, almost this twist. That oh yeah. And underlying all that, of course, which we do see coming to fruition at the end of Revenge of the Sith, but also seeing fully the full implications, at least for the will of the Force there, is Palpatine. And if you ask anybody what their favorite part of the prequels are, if you ask anybody at least what one of the most solid and consistent part of the prequels are, it's Palpatine's character... E. McDermott's performance, and in episode one, he's we know he's the emperor. We know he's one of the things where we know more than the characters do. Uh, 
he, we know who's Darth Sidious, the, the evil Sith Lord. But he's the smiling, benevolent, cheerful grandpa, Uncle Palpy, Senator from Naboo, who's playing this uh, this crisis on his home planet, all to his advantage. Of course, we see later how uh, he takes that crisis and, and pushes it, keeps pushing it, keeps pushing it even further, and says, you know, to, to basically create the Commonwealth of Independent Systems and the Clone Wars and the chaos of the Clone Wars and ultimately the downfall of the Jedi um, and the rise of the Empire. And so <laughs> here again, it kicks it off and kicks it off so convincingly, so uh, compellingly that, oh yeah, we can actually chart this. And again, James Lucino did a great job in spelling this out for us if we couldn't follow it. But, uh, yeah, there's something to say, especially for the way the choices that Ian McDermott makes, the transition between Darth Sidious and Senator Palpatine, um, at the end becomes Chancellor Palpatine. Um, the way he whispering in Padme's ear, being surprised that Padme decides to go home, <laughs> right? Um, that's uh, this wonderful master stroke. And again, I'll go as far as saying of all the actors throughout the saga, the best actor, the best acting performance, the entire saga is Ian McDermott all the way through. And I think I don't even need to convince you of that. I think you, if, if you listen, you, you, at least, you might say Liam Neeson or Frank Oz or Ian McGregor. And that's fair. They, they're all great too. Uh, Liam Neeson, of course, only in one, one episode here. But um, Ian McDermott uh, being just everything we need <laughs> and, and more. Uh, but not necessarily the actor we deserve because uh, people, people ignored that fact and, and uh, focusing on the hate to Jake Lloyd and Ahmed Best and all that, forgetting uh, E. McDermott really brought this film together and it takes a good villain to bring this film together. So trade dispute and Palpatine, those are, those are good. Artu's shaking his head at me because I think the best part of episode one can critique maybe her performance and the way George Lucas told Natalie Portman to act. And yeah, there were conflicts on set for all three films. Um, I'm not too sure what those conflicts were. I'm sure it's written down somewhere. But Queen Amidala and one of my favorite moments of the whole saga is when here and here goes back to the whole trade dispute is when she's standing in the Senate and said, I have not come to debate the, I forget the line specifically, but um, to d debate uh, my people suffering and debate the Senate committee come to a, and this attack on my people's sovereignty now when she stands up there and yes, Palpatine's whispering in her ear, but she's actually almost taking that and saying, no, I'm going to use this agency. I'm this 14-year-old girl that nobody thinks can do anything. 
can take action, can be bold. And here am I actually taking charge and standing up for my people on a galactic stage. Um, we see parallels that. I think of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez right now. Here's an interesting parallel that I hadn't thought of, but she's 29, which is considered young for a member of Congress. And people are saying, sit down, know your role, know your place. And she's not. She's standing up and she's uh, taking, taking the bull by the horns and actually addressing head on where a lot of American public policy has gone off the rails. And about uh, ICE and well, the, the immigration and uh, environmental, uh, you know, well, the environmental policy. In this case, with Padme, she's 14 and punching above the weight that everyone thought she had, even Darth Sidious. Queen Amidala is young and naive, controlling a world will not be difficult. Even Palpatine underestimates Amidala. Everyone does. And it's why it's so brilliant the way she is able to, to be the state's person that she is. But then we do see her meeting Anakin in the shop. And part of that is kind of the teenage crush cringeworthy thing. But there's still, there's very much a heart there, a sensitivity there, compassion there. That she shows to Anakin. That she shows uh, to Jar Jar and the, the plan <laughs> that ultimately comes through taking the bold step of humility and addressing even being the one to address the centuries old tensions between this cold war if you will not a cold war but the frigidity between the Naboo and the Gungans and she realizes they can't afford to to do that she the queen of Naboo kneels before the Gungan boss and says we need your help. Just like an interesting parallel to Leia. A little bit. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. It's it's not exact, of course. Right? Obi-Wan is a great wise and Jedi master. But the strength of acknowledging that we need to build bridges and and alliances and coalitions in order to actually survive and uh, face the challenges ahead of us. Padme understands that. And even the, the shocking, wonderful shocking twist uh, <laughs> that surprised everyone, I think. I don't know if the marketing so much, I, I don't quite remember what the marketing was. Uh, if they actually said Natalie Portman as Queen Amidala and you could tell Keira Knightley versus Natalie Portman and the Handmaiden thing. I don't know. But uh, once she knows the exact moment to do it, too. She is able to see, and this is the, the Brian Young thing, right? Here, she's able to understand how important Gungans can be. How everyone from the Jedi to the Republic to the Trade Federation have overlooked 
the the strength and commitment of the Gungan army to protecting themselves and to protecting their planet. Um, she doesn't overlook that. Why? Because she's been overlooked herself. She understands how that feels. She understands why, why that's wrong. And she understands how you can use that to your advantage. Which she does even to Palpatine. She does that to the Trade Federation. And again, to repeat the Brian Young thing then. Jar Jar's connection to the Gungans. Connection to uh, being having the Gungans be this presence on the in, in this battle of feed to draw out the Trade Federation forces when allowing Woman of Action Padme and Captain Panaka and them to uh, to get into the palace and capture New Gunray and uh, having that multi layered strategy. That involves these peoples that have often the galaxy often looks down on or ignores. Um, they've stayed hidden, but you see Qui Gon and Obi Wan's well, more more Obi Wan's attitude towards Jar Jar, uh, a local, you know, <laughs> uh, local yokel, if you will. Of course, Yoda will see that and uh, you know understand, teach Luke. Trust these people. Trust these these other species that people look down on. And so in Return of the Jedi, the way the Ewoks can then be uh, be mobilized into drawing out the Empire, drawing out the Imperial garrison on Endor, and actually subduing them enough to, uh, at least by time, for the shield to go down and all that. So Jar Jar being the key to everyone, that's Brian Young's <laughs> whole thing. In a way, it starts with Padme. Padme is the first to really recognize this. And um, that's why I'm really excited to delve in more with that, with Southern Ontario's Kate Johnston's uh, Queen's Shadow. That'll be exciting. And it brings back, it brings us back to The Phantom Menace, and to this film and this wonderful character that, I agree. That's I love Revenge of the Sith. You know how I feel about Revenge of the Sith, but it is there is the weakest point is what ends up happening with Padme. I think it may be part of the point that Anakin's rage and the growing empire has actually squashed these types of characters who are de deeply trying to do good. That pregnancy doesn't have to do that. <laughs> A pregnant woman very much can be present <laughs> in the world. doesn't have to be found in the oven, but often our constructs and our ways of understanding women and child, children, again, overlook their capabilities in the present. Um, and again, it's one thing. If they, you know, and mat leave is important and attending to family is important, but there's a different approach there that I'm getting at. That's a bit of a, that's a tangent, but Again, something we see the contrast between Padme in episode one and episode three. Um, so, so Padme, another great thing about Phantom Menace.
one of the most important characters in the whole saga. And someone I've uh, I've done a whole podcast on parallels with John the Baptist is Qui-Gon Jinn. And you know, Master and Apprentice again coming out. This is partly getting at why I'm so excited about these two novels. Um, another person with the insight to look past the way things seem. I mean, with you have both Padme and Qui Gon, it's they're able to detect the Phantom Menace. They sense a disturbance in the Force, or, or Qui Gon does. Qui Gon meets meets Jar Jar and says, "Okay." Let's see where this goes, right? <laughs> Who knows? Even with Padme, there's no, no uh, orders from Her Highness today, but lets her come into the Mos Espa anyways. Not knowing. Even he's surprised about the twist, although he could probably kind of see it coming. Um, you know, he, he, yeah, when, when I, I remember that the, when she does uh, the twist, meaning when Padme reveals herself in with the with the Gungans, the camera pans to Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and there's this this smirk. Like that was brilliant. Even got me. But I mean I admire Qui-Gon so much because he uh yeah, his sensitivity to the living force and his ability to here's here's a, a phrase, read the size signs of the times. Uh, in the Age of Republic one shot, his Age of Republic one shot that I mentioned, goes into that even more. And I know with Master of Apprentice, Master and Apprentice, he's offered the seat on the council. I haven't read that because I don't want to get into spoilers, but he's even Qui Gon is even able to see the corruption brewing within the Jedi Order. He's able to see. Uh, see into deeper and discernment what's actually going on right and obviously he's not gonna when the Clone Wars erupt he's not gonna try and come back and say I told you so but he could see it in advance he could see this brewing if he had stuck around if he had stayed alive maybe he would have either been a, a moderating voice a voice that can call the Jedi back he might have been a prophet without honor as we see he already was a prophet without honor um, and uh, his, his rejection really in a way by the Jedi no rejection his, the fact that he was sidelined is a sign of how far they come because like I said he, he's kind of out of the old republic a little bit the long hair <coughs> sensitivity to the living force this mystical aura about him and this amazing thing where he meets this kid and yes he uses the midichlorian scale but obviously that's not all of it right he sees how generous Anakin is how compassionate he is how he's willing to risk everything for these people he's just met that there's even a certain wisdom in the way Anakin goes about being a kid 
right? The the wisdom of a child, and Polygon recognizes that to his detriment. Maybe ignores the fear and the the fact that after nine years of being a slave is going to wreck a kid, <laughs> as we see later. Um, and and as we hear Qui Gon's the first instance of a Force ghost really is. Ten years later, he's yelling Anakin, don't, when Anakin's about to kill the, the Sand people. Um, but he's able to recognize this combination, and here, there was no father. You know, hear me say that, and says, he's willing to go for it, this, with this chosen one prophecy. And, yes, you can critique that, that blind faith, it's faith is what it is I mean we don't quite know whether or not it was blind we know it doesn't work out the way anyone thought it would of course the whole premise of this podcast is that Anakin is the chosen one but the, the richness that Qui-Gon brings to this film I mean he's, he's the heart and soul of it in a lot of ways so is Anakin but the one that we can really latch on to. I mean, and Obi- the way Obi-Wan is kind of the heart and soul of Fact of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, Qui-Gon passed along those things. And then, I mean, again, I mentioned this just before, if you want to talk about an acting performance that needs to be remembered, needs to be recognized. I mean, Liam Neeson is one of the greats. One of the all-time greats. And he took this role seriously right he could have maybe phoned it in I mean I mean the way even uh, Sir Alec Guinness he didn't quite phone it in but he could have Qui-Gon Jinn or Liam Neeson really took what Qui-Gon was trying to do very seriously and um, you know again it's the theme of small beginnings things we overlook things we were tempted to ignore are actually the things that uh, end up being the most important in the end uh, it's, it's all it's this very Tolkien-esque thing about the hobbits right uh, how you know they're the ones to bear the ring because of their innocence because of their willingness to sacrifice um their compassion for others who are similarly overlooked. Qui-Gon recognizes that. Liam Neeson recognized the importance of that theme and invested his character with with that grace and gravitas and vision. Um, and I do hope we see more of him in the future. So, Qui-Gon, the theme behind this is the characters are really what make this film. <laughs> Just putting that out there. Um, so, a few more things. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only help. Yeah, Obi-Wan, he's a good one. Uh, we see his origins. We see his youthfulness. We also see his bravery in stepping out. Believe me, I know what it's like when you've prepared for a long time, but still stepping out into the big time. And 
This is the first time we see Obi-Wan, or the youngest we see Obi-Wan, of course, not the first time. First time we see Obi-Wan is, is at his oldest, at his end. Very calm and very serene. Uh, and that, that Rebels episode, uh, Twin Sons, really plays this up, really shows this, is the progression between Phantom Menace Obi-Wan and New Hope Obi-Wan is <laughs> is calmed, wizened, willing to accept life and death and had, has learned Qui-Gon's lesson of being mindful of the living force, being mindful of where you are. Whereas Phantom Menace, is the, the, it's, it's expressed in that scene with the, the, the duel with Maul, where... The, you know, the, those laser barriers are there, and they come. They come in front of you. You better not touch those. Maul is, of course, being this kind of ravenous cat, being all hitting the hitting the, the the barrier with his lightsaber. Qui Gon is kneeling in meditation. There's nothing more he can do. Might as well calm his his mind and his heart. And probably has a sense he's about to die. Obi-Wan is running up. He's panting. He's like, I want to get going, I want to get going, I want to get going. And maybe that's an early lesson of learning patience. That we even see 10 years later him being more patient. Still showing aggression, but being more patient. The interesting contrast again when. Uh, 30 years later after that he's 30 years later he's uh, on the Death Star with Anakin with Vader and is able to calmly and patiently accept death there is that pattern with Qui-Gon Obi-Wan Luke in The Last Jedi right Patience, patient acceptance of the will of the Force. So everyone learning to do that, he's still far more by the book. But we see, okay, we can see the influence of Qui-Gon later on, because by, certainly by Revenge of the Sith, and I do believe this is the case, Obi-Wan's found this way of integrating cosmic and living force he's integrating the traditions and rules of the Jedi Order at the service of reading the signs of the times in the moment and we see he already had the potential for that at the beginning especially being raised up by Qui-Gon so well um, and so when we see with Obi-Wan at the end of his life <laughs> Why do I think this character is going to be the death of me? Or something. <laughs> That's that, that funny bit of foreshadowing. But we know that Kenobi, he, he actually takes that choice. And wills it. So the last bit about the Phantom Menace and looking back on the characters of the Phantom Menace is Anakin himself. And we mentioned Shmi. should mention Shmi first. Her courage, her patience... Um, Pernil's August performance again, great performance, subtle, compassionate, 
heartbroken, deeply sad. Um, if any any mothers out there can can let me know. I mean, or, or she gives she gives us a sense. Even I'll never be a mother, but she gives us a sense of how much she goes with the ups and downs of her child, and whether or not her child's special. Those are child special, but just the everyday trials of a child, in this case, of a slave who she can do nothing about in terms of saving, but has to, but is then about to risk her life. I die every time you do your race. Pernilla just really, in her face, in her eyes, and in her voice, really rings that out really beautifully. So Shmi hail Shmi, full the force. <laughs> Anakin, what struck me about Anakin is his innocence. This is really profound, because we don't think of Anakin being innocent, right? Anakin in Attack of the Clones, killing all those younglings. Anakin, after three years of war in Revenge of the Sith, uh, doing selling, selling the, the phone, selling the whole ship, whatever the, the line is, for, um, you know, to just to save Padme from himself, really, and it ends up not happening, turning to the dark side. But, and in, in, in uh, the Star Wars Insider, is the current, not the current, the, the recent edition, they're kicking off, they're doing every article, every issue is one of the films leading up to episode nine. Well, the first one is, of course, episode one. And the article in there highlights Anakin's innocence. Like I mentioned before, that generosity, compassion, childlikeness, willing to care for others, willing to love others, and and sacrifice for others. And ultimately it's that sacrifice that ends up saving the day. Also his incredible technical expertise <laughs> you know building what nine-year-old can build a droid right what nine-year-old can wants to get uh the the autopilot off the ship off the naboo fighter in order to actually be able to control it and pod racing and you know spinning <laughs> um but the, the the youthful fun of of doing that and the thrill it's before even despite being a slave, it's before it's been corrupted by uh, by Jedi politics, corrupted by an obsessive crush on Padme. Um, but it sets all these things off too. So it sets off, of course, the fall to the dark side. A person, my name is Anakin. And, and, and there's that defiance there that I'll get to in a second. So is is birth as a slave and um, you know just the, the again the effect that can have on anyone I don't know because I've never experienced that um, but then of course the chosen one prophecy and the thing with prophecies is you never want to expect them right. <laughs> You never, or you never, you never want to 
expect them in the thing we're looking at. You can only look backwards and see, okay, this is how it is. And of course, 1999, looking back to 1983, maybe we could see, okay, Anakin returns and brings balance to the force. I'm a person. My name is Anakin. I'm not a slave to to Watto. I'm not a slave to the Empire. I'm not a slave to this suit that is Darth Vader. The most important thing about The Phantom Menace is the way it hints at, shows us, sets up everything that comes after it. All the way until Return of the Jedi. Hopefully all the way until uh, Episode 9. And I hope they make good on Anakin's legacy in Episode 9. Um, it's just this boy that we heard about. We're in Yankovic singing about. We met this boy. And the mystery of, of a child, mystery of a child's destiny, the pressure and the weight that ends up crushing him, but ultimately the promise that is fulfilled. Not simply through his own effort, but the will of the Force at the right place in the right time. And in a way, giving us episode one completes the picture. You know, in a, in a way that Revenge of the Sith completes the picture, but in a way that it couldn't. Right? Revenge of the Sith completes the picture of how we got to the sequel trilogy. The beginning, sorry, the beginning of the original trilogy. Episode one paints a picture for us of showing who Anakin truly is, because who we truly are, in a way, is who we are as a child. Yes, our experiences layer upon us. But at our, our core, our deepest core, is who we are as a child. And as much as at the end of Return of the Jedi, as much as Anakin Skywalker, Clone Wars General, Jedi Knight, comes back, it's Anakin Skywalker, humble uh, child, who's willing to risk and risk everything to save the people he loves truly actually save the people he loves at you know his own expense whatever it costs so that is why episode one is so great um, you know the characters the acting frankly john williams is john williams he's always going to be perfect <laughs> um but yeah eight really sets up everything we see afterwards and it's to be commended it's to be remembered it's to be loved i think if this helps you appreciate the film better hashtag prequel defense force uh please let me know if you think i'm wild and don't know what i'm talking about please let me know too on uh twitter and neug 485 Request a follow on Instagram, uh, MNUG1138. This has been episode 42 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. I didn't get to any kind of life, the universe, and everything directly, but in a way, Fandomena sets up 
the life universe and everything of the Star Wars saga and Star Wars Galaxy. So, there you go. I brought it in. <laughs> R2, one more shot. He's ready to go. Um, yeah, and this has been, again, episode 42 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. Again, if you want to follow me, NEUG485, Instagram, enemy, I mean, MNEUG 1138. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you. Always. <laughs>